Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel of John sermon series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you once again, and may the Lord bless you. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy. We thank you for the great privilege that you've given us, Lord, to come and to to worship in your word, in song, and in fellowship. We pray that this morning you would give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, minds to understand. We pray that that which is spoken here in the end of your discourse, your fond farewell to your disciples, that it would be for us a source of encouragement, strength, and challenge. And that we, Lord, would trust in you to clarify the things that are unclear. And God, to help apply the things that are beyond our power. We thank you, Lord. I decrease so that you may increase. Become less so that you can become more. Pray that you would move me out of the way this morning and that you alone would be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. John 16, verse 25. I have said these these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly, and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things, and that you do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. This is God's word. Those who have ears to hear are blessed to hear what the Spirit of God says to the church. You may be seated this morning. <clears throat> With these words that we have just read, the Lord Jesus Christ brings his farewell discourse, if you will, to a close. Uh, It may appear to be a a solemn farewell, but within the solemnity of this moment lies the point of triumph that the Lord Jesus Christ is pointing his disciples towards. Throughout these chapters, 
Jesus has had one overriding concern that he has communicated to his followers. And we find that overriding concern highlighted at the end of this discourse and at the end of this chapter. Verse 33. I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Here's the overriding concern. I have overcome the world. And Jesus wants his disciples to know that he has overcome the world. But in a few short hours, this truth of Christ overcoming the world will appear to his disciples. It will appear to become counterintuitive. It will be uh, the opposite of what they were led to believe about him. Why? Why would this truth presumably be counterintuitive? Because in just a few short hours, these disciples will see their Lord brutalized, arraigned, condemned, and finally crucified. What could be more counterintuitive to the triumph and glory that the Lord Jesus Christ speaks of here than what the disciples will soon witness in a a bloody, broken, beaten, and humiliated Savior on the cross of Calvary. Our Lord says to his disciples, take heart. The authorized version says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The cross of Calvary would appear to mock the claim of Christ as the conqueror of the world. He will appear to be conquered by the world in the eyes of his disciples. But as Paul reminds the Colossians in Colossians 2.15, that at the cross he, think about this word, he, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He, he disarmed them. The cross of Calvary is the, the great counterintuitive act of God in history. For there, at the cross, at the cross, God triumphs over sin, hell, death, and yes, even the world. But where? At the cross. Jesus said, I have said these things to you so that in me you're soon crucified, triumphant king. You will have peace. This is staggering. And it must have been just as staggering for the disciples who were yet living in an age of shadow. On that side of the cross of Calvary. On that side of Pentecost. As the Lord surveys all that lies before him. And and all that is pressing in on him. What it will mean for him to suffer estrangement from the humanity or in his humanity from his father. The great depths of that estrangement that you and I will never in 10,000 times 10,000 years begin to understand. And in that process, he is completely, he is wholly taken up with the care and the comfort of his little children as he calls them in chapter 13. In the midst of all that is before him and all that is pressing in around him, he is wholly concerned with his little children. 
He is a good shepherd who watches over his loved ones and he will do all that he can to love them and to protect them and to comfort them in the midst of his own great struggle and the midst of his own great impending darkness. This is the Savior that we, by the grace of God, belong to. This is our Lord Jesus Christ who has overcome the world by his cross. And this morning, we have just five things that we would like to to highlight in the passages before us. Number one, notice that Jesus speaks of the hour. This hour, the hour, this hour has been a reoccurring statement or, or motif of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the Gospel of John. And it's found in verse 25. The hour is coming. When I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech or with enigmatic sayings. And verse 32, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. The hour means one thing. The hour has one meaning. It is the divinely appointed moment when Jesus will be put to death for our sins and the raising to life for our justification. The hour is not simply and solely the cross. It is not simply and solely the time of agony. But the hour is the the whole complex of events which in the mind and heart of God is but one event. The self-offering of the Redeemer for the sins of His people. The atoning sacrifice of the Redeemer for His people. The resurrection of the Redeemer for the justification of His people. And the exaltation of the Redeemer for the eternal security of His people. These are all but one event. All of these events in the redemptive plan of God are but one. One event. And that event That one event is this hour that is now standing at the threshold of redemptive history. The hour has come. It is this hour that has dominated the the mental horizon of our Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly incarnation and his earthly ministry. And it could be that this hour has dominated the mind of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ from all eternity. Jesus said in John 12, 27, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. If we could use our imagination, we could picture the Lord from all eternity, anticipating the moment, the hour. And finally, the time comes when in the, the, the mystery of eternal glory, the eternal son becomes a zygote in the, the virgin's womb. He grows in Nazareth, begins his public ministry, being baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan and hearing the voice of the father say, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then again at the transfiguration, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And the pace 
The pace of that hour is gathering speed. That The sand in the hourglass is all but gone. And our Lord begins to sense in His own human soul the, the impending and approach, approaching wrath of God. The cup of wrath that He will not run from but run to. Yes. Yes. That hour is approaching. Yes. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No. It is for this hour that I have come. Can you turn the air up, please? It's freezing. He is embracing the cross. He did not shrink back from the cross, but he embraced the cross. For he had come to do the will of his father. And the will of his father was found completely and completed at the cross. He embraced the hour. He embraced that hour. He had come for that hour. And we find our Lord Jesus Christ marching out to meet that hour in battle. To be the Savior of His little children. He had come to stand for them. He had come to be their sin-bearing substitute. He had come to be their covenant king. To die the death that they could never die and to make atonement for them that they could never, that we could never make for ourselves. He came to provide for them a righteousness that we and they in 10,000 years times 10,000 could never make for ourselves. He has come to meet that hour face to face. And scripture says that his face, he set his face as flint, as hard and as strong as pure steel. As he marched out to meet that hour. Secondly, notice the promise of plain speaking. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. We are not completely sure of what this means or even when Jesus is speaking of. But rest assured that the Lord Jesus Christ is pointing forward to a time when that which is enigmatic That which is foggy, that which is unclear, will be made clear. Remember, the disciples were still living in the the age of shadow. On that side of the cross and Calvary, on that side of Pentecost, they could hear all the words of Jesus. They could understand his flow. But what did he mean? A time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in shadow. And Jesus may be looking ahead. It's not, we're not sure, but he may be looking ahead to the 40 days after the resurrection. When in the book of Acts, he presented himself alive to them, Acts 1-3, after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during that 40 days and speaking to them about what? About the kingdom of God. What did he discuss with them? The kingdom of God. It was the the dominating theme in the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of the kingship of the Lord. God Almighty. And Luke tells us that after the resurrection, Jesus says to them, These are the things that I told you would happen. And he reminds to them once again in John that everything written must be fulfilled. And he opens their minds. He opens their understanding To the scriptures concerning the kingdom of God. And think about this for a moment. 
Can you imagine what it must have been like for these men to be taken through the scriptures by the perfect exegete of the scriptures? Hour by hour, day by day, sitting at the feet of the one who created their feet. That 40 days must have seemed like but moments passing by them as the creator of the universe exegetes all that he has ever said in the scriptures. Some of the brothers often ask me and sisters as well, what is a good commentary? And I once made the the mistake of saying J.C. Ryle gets everything right. And the response from a man much wiser than I was this. There is only one perfect interpreter of the scriptures. What must it have been like for the perfect interpreter of the scriptures, the Lord Jesus Christ, to walk through the scriptures with them and to piece together all of the confusing pieces of the puzzles in their minds and give them the grand design of the Father. They were able to see the the panorama of history, of redemptive history, and have it explained to them in plain speech. Understanding the fall and the promise of God in the garden, the types and the shadows of the Old Testament, the whole Levitical law, and we know that that's a challenge, the function and the purpose of the kings and prophets, and all of the passages that they must have wrestled with, he places and pieces together for them during that 40-day period. What an amazing blessing that must have been. And Jesus is saying to them, a time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. They could never have, have fathomed in a million years that 40-day period was at the threshold of their own lives. That no longer they would see the truth of God dimly or through shadow, but that he would open up their minds and unlock the mysteries of God to them. And isn't that what happens when God, by his Holy Spirit, brings us to faith in Jesus Christ? Our eyes, as it were, were opened Our minds were opened. All the things that were once enigmatic become clear. We are like the man who was born blind, who says about himself, I once was blind, but now I see. In the mercy of God, some of us have never known what it is to not have God in our lives. But for most of us, there is a transition. For most of us, there is a once I was blind, but now I see moment. But there is still a sense in which we are very much like the disciples. We do not live in the age of shadow like they did. We live in the age of fulfillment. And there is still yet more to be fulfilled. We still, right now, see through a a glass darkly. We have yet to see him face to face. And there are times when we feel like the man in the gospel who says, I see men like trees. I don't see clear. I see, but I see some of the truths of God appear to be so elusive to us. And if that is your experience, then glory be to God. It is good that that is your experience because that is part of the authentic Christian experience. But one day, we will come and know 
that which we do not know now. One day all the shadows will disappear. And it could be possibly in an instant that all of the fog is evaporized or is, is, is vaporized by the glory and the brightness of the sun. We look forward to that promise when that which is unclear will be made clear. Thirdly, notice the privilege that Christians will enjoy. Verse 26. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have believed that I came from him. Listen to this quote by John Calvin. Here, we are taught that we have the heart of God as soon as we place before him the name of his son. Let me read that to you again, and I'd like you to think about that saying. Here we are taught, we have the heart of God as soon as we place before him the name of his son. What does that mean? Does that mean that because, does that mean that the Father loves us because we love Jesus? And let me ask that in a different way. Does the Father begin to love us when we begin to love the Son? If that is the case, brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, if it is the case that God only begins to love you when you begin to love the Son, then that would turn the gospel upside down. If it is the case that God only begins to show you love when you begin to show love to His Son, then it undercuts the grace and the glory found in the gospel. Why? To believe that someone could somehow first make a move to God before God ever made a move to himself. It robs God of the glory that only belongs to God. For you and I would never make one step toward God if it, if it were not for God first making a loving step toward us. Jesus is not denying that he loved us before we loved him or that even the father loved him before he laid down his sheep, his life for his sheep, of course. But rather he is saying this, God's love, the father's love is confirmed by us, to us, by our love for the son. The father's love is confirmed to us by our love to Christ. Or as Calvin would put it, when we love Christ, we have the pledge of the Father's love before whom we formerly trembled as hostile, as a hostile judge. Meaning this, when we love Christ, God shows us that he has pledged his love to us and that we can now stand righteous before him when we used to stand trembling before him as our judge. The gospel of Christ is the gospel of free, undeserved love of God to judgment-deserving sinners, you and I. The fountainhead, if you will, of the gospel is the Father's love for the world expressed to them in Christ. God shows just how much he loves by sending his son. What is the glory of the gospel? What is the glory of the gospel? It is that God 
has loved undeserving sinners in spite of nothing that they could ever do to earn his love. Here our Lord is saying, as a way of, his, of encouragement to his disciples, you will ask in my name because you love me. The Father will pledge to you by answering your prayers his love. Whenever you present the name of his Son, you have the Father's heart. Let me ask you a question. Are there times in your life when you question, does God really love me? Is there ever moments in your life when you question, am I really loved by the Father? If you are honest in the recesses of your heart, we have all asked that question, does the Father really love me? We look at the world who is so inconsistent with their love. And we somehow compare the inconsistency of the world's love to the Father's love. And brothers and sisters, there is no comparison. He says in verse 27, the Father himself loves you. How do I know that he loves me? Let me say to you that that is the wrong question to ask. Rather, we should say, I love the Savior. I love him poorly. I love him imperfectly. But I do love him. And therefore, the Father loves me. The Father himself loves me. How can I be sure? How can I be sure that the Father really does love me? Here's a great encouragement for you this morning. We have these men as our example of how much the Father really does love you. Here's why they are our example. Do you think that what was going to take place in the lives of these disciples somehow passed by, unnoticed by our Lord Jesus Christ? Meaning this, do you think that he did not see or know what they would do in just a few hours? Do you think that he was unaware that these men whom he was pouring out his love upon, do you think that he was blind to what they would soon do to him? Our Lord was affirming his love for them and, and in doing so affirming the Father's love. For them, when in just a few short hours, these men would be buried under a cloud of unbelief and a cloud of cowardice. These men, who the Lord Jesus Christ commends for loving him and believing in him before the dawn, would soon all forsake him and flee. And you wonder, does he love me? Does he love me? How can I know that he loves me? He is saying to these men that will soon desert him. And he knew that he, they would desert him. He says to these imperfect, deserting, coward, cowardly men, the Father loves you. He loves you. And we say about ourselves when we fail and when we fall, I don't know if he loves me. Look to these men. As your example of just how much he loves you. And how aware he is of your own failures. And how aware of, of, 
aware that he is of your own faults. And yet in the midst of these, he loves you. Because you love him. Jesus knew that they would soon run from him. He knew that the shepherd would be struck and the sheep, the timid sheep, they would all scatter. And yet, weak as they were, timid as they were, and as they would be even greater, the Lord Jesus Christ affirms the Father's love for them. Let us, brothers and sisters, let us take great comfort in this blessed truth. The Savior of sinners will not cast away those who have repented and believe. Though they often be weak and though they often be timid and though they often, though we often fail, He will not cast us away. A bruised reed He will not break. And a smoldering wick He will not cast out. He will not snuff out. Our Lord can see the true faith of these men even under affliction. He sees their faith and he is graciously pleased. Why? Because he is the author of that faith. He's the author. They are not the author of that faith. He is the author of that faith. The followers of Christ can rejoice. We have a friend in Christ who will not cast out any member of his flock. No matter how weak, no matter how feeble we may be. That is where we anchor. That is where we anchor our love. That is where we anchor all of our questions. Thomas Goodwin, the English Puritan, looked in himself for signs of grace. Signs to see if he was really saved. And he was corrected and said, this is a fool's errand, Thomas. All your hope rests in Jesus Christ and his love to you. Not your love to Him. We often fail and fall back into the sins of the flesh that we once believed were slain in our flesh. Do we not? And this is one of the great deceptions of the devil. To have us turned into ourselves, scrabbling about. And one day we find heightened passions of Christ and we live in the joy that we, we now have true love for God because we sense great passions. And then just as soon or as quickly as we have great joy and great passions, the next day we are cold and distant before God. And we begin to question ourselves and the Father's love and do I truly belong to Him? Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. The great movement of the gospel is God to me, not me to God. The Father himself loves you. Fourthly, it is important to say this after what I have just said. Jesus confronts his disciples over confidence. It is important to say this point in light of what we have just said. And there is a paradox there. There is a great line that we must tread between point three and point four. Jesus confronts his disciples over confidence. Verse 29. His disciples said, ah, (laughs) now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. 
Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you come from God. And Jesus answered them. Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. Now we know. Now we know. We understand fully now. And the response of Jesus is, you don't know the half of it. In just a few short hours, you will be scattered. Each to your own home. You think you know. You have no idea. The man whom they say came from God, they will soon scatter and flee from. All of us, in varying degrees, are much like these disciples. We think we know. We often think more highly of ourselves in varying degrees than we ought to think. We have already established, though, that we cannot doubt their faith. These men had true faith. Their faith was sincere. Their faith was real. And they honestly meant when they said, ah, now we understand. Now we get it. They believed that. But there is many things that they did not yet know. And first and foremost, they did not know themselves. There were many things that they did not yet know. And the first thing that they truly did not know was themselves. They did not know what they were capable of. They did not know what they were capable of, capable of doing under the kind of pressure and temptation that would soon come their way. They could not foresee themselves doing such a thing. It was Peter who said, I would never leave you. Even if everyone left you, I would never leave you. That was unimaginable to Peter. If everyone were to desert you, I will never leave you. Oh, Simon, Simon. You don't really know yourself, do you? Simon, Simon, you don't really know yourself. J.C. Ryle says, They inaccurately estimated the weakness of their flesh, the power of the devil, the feebleness of their own resolutions, and the shallowness of their own faith. They would soon find out Who they were. And in finding out who they were. They would experience the most painful. Distress of their lives. This is who I am. Peter wept bitterly. Judas hung himself. They all ran and hid. They would soon learn that wearing a soldier's uniform was one thing. Going into battle was quite another. What about you this morning? What do you estimate about yourself and your own strength before God? Some will say with false pride and false humility, I am nothing. But carry themselves as though they were everything. It was Paul who said to the Church of Ephesus, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach 
to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This was not false pride. This is a man who had been to the cross every single day of his life. Who says to Timothy, I am, I am the chief of sinners. Not I was, but I am the chief of sinners. We must live humbly before God. Beginning every single day, pounding our chest, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And someone may ask, do we ever get beyond that? Do we ever get beyond the pounding of our chest, the beating of our breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? No, we don't. I don't think we do. I don't think we get past that. The longer that you are a Christian, the more pressing that confession will become on your soul. I pray that when I speak and share with some of those who are starting on their track of ministry, and when they hear me say some of the things that I say to them and share with them the many mistakes that I've made, that they don't see a man who is great, but they see a man who is weak and who is in constant need of mercy and who God has been constantly merciful to. Yes. Yes. In light of all my failures, in light of all of my weaknesses, because we are all, yes. by the grace of God, or but by the grace of God, one step away, one look away from disaster. Yes. Better Christians than me have fallen because they have not watched and prayed. Oh. It is one thing to be tempted. It is quite another to walk into temptation. Watch and pray until the day you die. Beat your breast until the day you die. God, be merciful to me. Help me to watch. Help me to pray. And that which you pray in private will be that which is in the depths of your soul who you are. That which you pray in private will be that who in the depths of the soul you truly are. And finally, a wonderful reassurance. Verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus is looking forward to the cross. The issue has already been settled. <laughs> you will have tribulation. We've discussed that over and over. Union with Christ equals inescapable tribulation. There will be trouble and trial to a greater or even lesser extent. We live in a world that is sinful and hostile to Christ. But take heart. Young people, take heart. Older people, take heart. Be of good cheer. In me, you have peace. Brothers and sisters, we have known deep and desperate times. In those moments when you find yourself in the depths, where is your consolation? What comforts? What consoles you? Who comforts? Who consoles you? What do they say? More likely than not, at some point in consolation, you will hear words, be encouraged. 
Be strong. Take heart. And the moment that these predictable words come from the lips of those who mean well, we almost feel a sense of anger rising up on the inside of us, don't we? When someone says to you, when you're going through your difficult times, it's going to be okay. Take courage. Because the words almost seem to be non-sympathetic. They almost seem to be cliché. As if you don't really care what I'm going through, but you know you're supposed to say, it's going to be okay. And here's why that statement may make us well up with anger the most. Because the person who is saying it's going to, it's going to be okay has no control over the situa- situation to make it okay. So when they come to you and say, take heart, it's going to be okay. Take strength. Be encouraged. They have no power over the situation. To give you such encouragement. But when Christ says. Take courage. Take heart. Be of good cheer. We are hearing from the one who is. In complete control. Who is sovereign over even the tiniest of molecules. And who says. To you. When you are in the depths. And when you find yourself in the midst of. Of the most troubling trials that you could ever think or imagine. He says to you, the sovereign one, be of good cheer. Take heart. Be encouraged. He has overcome the world. Look through the New Testament. There is only one person who ever commands. This is not a phrase. Who commands. Take heart. This is no phrase. This is no suggestion. It comes from the mouth of the sovereign one who commands, take heart. Be encouraged. Now we know the command of do not lie or steal. But do you know the command of take heart? Anytime you hear the command, it only comes from one person. You never hear Peter saying, take heart. Or Paul, you hear Jesus. And if they quote it or say it, it's because they are pointing to the one who has told you or commanded, take heart. We live in two worlds simultaneously. We live in Bakersfield and we live in Christ. And in this world, we have peace. Don't be confused. It is not the peace of a trouble-free life that Christ is offering you. It is not a a sick-free life that Christ is offering you, or a poor-free life, or a temptation-free life. God has never promised us that life. But peace, knowing that the Father Himself loves you. Peace in knowing that you have been reconciled to God. Through Christ Jesus. The peace of knowing that your sin, not in part, but in whole, has been nailed to the cross. And that you no longer bear that sin. The peace of knowing that Satan has been trampled under your feet. There may be one thing that the charismatic word of faith church that I grew up in got right. 
That is, Satan is under your feet. In me, you have peace. Ephesians 2.14, he is our peace. And the scene is set. His disciples, he says to his disciples, you will leave me, yet I am not alone. Never would any man be more forsaken. And at the same time, never would any man be more loved. Can you imagine at the cross? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And at the same time, he is so pleased at the work of his son. Even as the father was forsaking the son. And what a great mystery of eternity that will always be. He was orchestrating heaven and declaring, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. As the father was laying on him the iniquity of us all. His heart was, if I could say, bursting with pride, if I could say that. This is my beloved son. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. Whom this morning we come and celebrate at his table. Who this morning we come weak, feeble, timid as we often are. And bring all of our weaknesses to the cross, to his table. And receive grace and his table as a means of grace. And reminding us that redemption has been accomplished. Let us stand this morning and prepare our hearts for fellowship with our Savior.